It is always, always a pleasure to be permitted to come and be with this group of people. And I can't tell you how much the AP staff is grateful to this congregation for the, uh, it's almost like a marriage. It's gone on a long time, and it's very intimate, very close. And we love and appreciate you all. Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bible, you might want to flip open to the book of Romans. Appreciate uh, how this has been organized, I assume by Terry, but perhaps others. Permit me to backtrack here just a moment and contextualize our study. You know we need to do that with any time we study the Word of God, make certain that we know what is going on in a book. Here, I hope, are some helpful little uh, assessments of this book in sorting out its, uh, its meaning. You know, if you were to take a look at the book of Acts, what strikes us about that book is it gives the first 30 years of the history of the Church of Christ and centers on the concept of taking the gospel to people and getting their reaction. So we could say that Acts and in broad brushstroke terms, uh, deals with the conditions of salvation. If that's the case, uh, then Romans deals more with the grounds of salvation. Acts, what do I need to do to be saved? Romans, how, why, what's going on here that makes this possible? I would suggest to you that the theme of the the, uh, book is 16 and 17 of chapter 1. This is really a capsule of the message of the book, and that, that's the thematic statement is what is being worked out uh, essentially through the first eight chapters. And here are those concepts embodied in that uh, theme. The gospel is God's power to save all who will believe. And that's really the point of this book. You know, while the Bible has a lot of complexity to it, no question about it, every one of our books was written by the Holy Spirit with a theme in mind, a central thrust. And you can go into a lot more detail, but you can also kind of capsule an entire book from Genesis to Revelation and get the gist of that book, what it's about. I think it was intentionally presented that way. I would like to just summarize the book briefly. God gave us his laws, starting with Adam and Eve, right? Humans have never been without the laws of God. Never been a time where God did not communicate his will Uh, to human beings, whatever period of human Bible history you want to talk about. Why did God do that? To be mean? You know, probably a lot of children view their parents that way. You know, parents, however else they view parents, parents put restrictions. They restrain. They seem to have a lot of things we have to do. Well, the older we get, the more we understand that's an immature appraisal of the situation let alone the fact that if parents love their children, they would not ever put anything on their kids that's not intended to be for their good, right? Parents may make mistakes on occasion along that line, but God never does. So his laws were intended to make us happy. That's the purpose of the law, to make us contented, to make us uh, whole, where we can go through life and be be, uh, enjoy life, and, and ultimately to be with God forever. That's really what's going on here. He wants us to be with him in eternity forever. What could be wrong with that? But, of course, he knew even before he created us that we we would all break his laws. So what's he going to do? Some people think, well, being God, he can do whatever he wants. You know, wave his hand, say, okay, I'll let that go. Come on into heaven. 
But the more we study the eternality of God and God being infinite in all of his attributes, being perfect deity, God cannot do that and be God, not a perfect God. You know, pagan gods, idolatrous uh, beings, uh, uh, Allah, you can do that sort of thing, but not a perfect, infinite God as the Bible depicts. There must be means uh, taken by which he can be in harmony with his nature and his character and yet still forgive sin and allow us to be acceptable to him. So he devised this incredible plan. He did it in eternity before he ever created the human race, before he ever created the cosmos and the, and the earth itself. A means by which he could forgive us without violating who he is. And of course, that is Christ and the cross. That is the good news. And that's what Romans is all about. But this book teaches very clearly that in order for us to take advantage of that marvelous grace, which he has offered to everybody, despite what Calvinism teaches, everybody has, it's available to everyone. But there has to be a response. And of course, that response is to bring oneself in harmony with gospel teaching, become a Christian, and then live the Christian life faithfully. Notice this is not rocket science. This is not hard to grasp. It's the simple message of the Bible, really, from beginning to end. And yet, really, the bulk of Christendom has balked on various features of that, of the simplicity of this plan. And that is tragic. And even within our brotherhood, this is kind of the denominational perspective, but it's also very prominent among us, sadly, right here in Montgomery. You know, two, three, four churches that would take this position, and I don't mean to misrepresent anybody. I've just heard it so much incessantly for so many years, and I'm sure you have too. Look, we're not saved by law-keeping. That, that, would, that would mean that we are saving ourselves and, and depending upon ourselves. So we really shouldn't emphasize law. We need to depend on grace and not worry about the technicalities of any laws. In fact, people that want to try to keep the law law-keepers, they're forfeiting grace. Have you heard these kinds of statements? Am I misrepresenting uh, the attitude that, it, that prevails uh, in many places? Well, of course, that's a ridiculous notion. Uh, the law of God, as we said, was articulated by God himself in the garden, and he continued to do so over the next uh, 4,000 years, giving law to man. Psalm 19, the first eight verses, the first half, is certainly a tremendous description of how law is inherently good if God's the author of it. And notice the terms that are used in this, uh, these verses, uh, six different expressions that are clearly intended to be synonyms. So the law of God is equivalent to speaking of his commandments and his judgments. And notice that they are perfect, sure, right, pure, and clean. And look at some of the things that, that law does for us. Now, this is primarily, of course, talking about uh, the old law, Mosaic law, but God's laws always, everywhere, are good for people and exactly what people need. You know, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 40 years after the law was first given at Mount Sinai, when it's being repeated, uh, notice that Moses goes out of his way to say that, you know, all right, God gave us all these laws, he commanded us these statutes, but... But why? To torture us, to torment us, to overly restrict us? No, they are for our good 
always. I do not believe that that mentality, that attitude prevails among those in our churches that uh, are promoting all of the, you know, the new trends of worship and so forth. This is repeated, of course, four chapters later. Israel, what, is, what does God require of you? And notice that this, this would apply today. There's nothing different about this teaching that is not uh, designed to uh, teach us as well. Parallel expressions, to fear God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him with all of our heart and soul and keep his commandments. Five ways to say the same thing. And why? It is for our good. And, of course, the New Testament teaches the same thing when John declared, this is love for God. Let me, let me nail it for you. This is love for God, that we keep his commandments. And don't wince at that. Oh, because they're not burdensome. They're not too difficult for us. They are for our good. And then, of course, James refers to law as the law of liberty. Isn't that interesting? And emphasizes you've got to continue in it. You've got to be a doer of it. And if you will be, you're blessed. That's the outcome of this, by devoting oneself to God's laws. Romans 2 indicates that if we will do what is good, that is, by definition, if you follow God and do what he wants you to do, then glory, honor, and peace will be yours. Aren't these tremendous um, declarations of the value of law? And then going back to James again, where he again uses this phrase, law of liberty. So James chapter 2, verse 12, law of liberty. James chapter 1, verse 25, law of liberty. But see, by today's thinking, by if you just... Look at the theological landscape, and perhaps even, I would suggest to you, even the political landscape. It seems to be a cultural trait that, it, that prevails in our society now. Because aren't there a number of our politicians that basically have the attitude, you know what? I don't care what the Constitution says. I don't care what the present law says. We can do what we want. We can write it any way we want. See, that's an antinomian mentality that God has always condemned as wicked. When people want to be a law to themselves, instead of to tie into uh, the law uh, that is right and good and proper. But see, to people today, this is kind of uh, antithetical. They, they clash with each other. That's like an oxymoron. Law and liberty? How can you be free if you're strapped with law? There's the prevailing uh, cultural mentality of our day. So liberty to them is freedom from law. And it seems to me our children, again, that's an immature attitude, but adolescent mentality, that's kind of the way that is. If I don't have to do all these things that my parents want me to do, I'll be free. Well, that kind of freedom is not really freedom. The liberty that the Bible teaches is freedom from sin, freedom from being out of harmony with God, and consequently, freedom from Slavery to oneself, freedom from slavery to the flesh, and ultimately eternal death. So law, depicted throughout Romans and, of course, in God's Word, just in the book of Romans, though, look how the law is alluded to in terminology that is extremely positive, very good, not something that is 
uh, spoken of in a derogatory or negative way. The law 712, the law is holy, it is just, it is good, it is spiritual, it is righteous, that is, it is fair, just, and uh, impartial, it is delightful, and in fact, it is God's oracles. It is synonymous with God's oracles. What could be wrong with law? Why would anybody speak derisively of law or in any way speak of it in a negative way? But this attitude that prevails, of course, in our society and in some of our churches is to pit grace against obedience to law. But the Bible never makes such a dichotomy, and uh, it is a complete perversion and misrepresentation of what the Bible teaches because even God's laws are an expression of his grace. Remember how Moses put it about the law, do these things, and you will live. The law brings life. It's intended to give you both physical and spiritual life. Man cannot, in fact, express love toward God without heeding God's laws. Who believes that today? And what about this? Man cannot express love toward God in any action that God has not commanded. All right, so you walk into a church, and they've got a praise team, and maybe some instruments over here, banjos or whatever, and there's people waving their arms, and everybody's clapping. And if you said, whoa, 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 do you all really love God? Well, you know they would say, absolutely. Why do you think we're doing all this? We are expressing our sincere desire to praise God. But the Bible teaches you cannot show love to God if you're doing something he hasn't told you to do. That is a complete misunderstanding of God and his nature. So, God's grace and man's obedience meets at the cross, can we say? If God had not orchestrated the cross, there would be nothing man could do. To be saved. He certainly can't save himself. In that sense, it's all by grace. But that's not what the Calvinist means when he says by grace alone. He really thinks there's nothing humans are to do. They can't do it. In fact, they can if they want to because uh, they are depraved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So notice then that the purpose of law according to the Bible and specifically as indicated throughout Romans has as its purpose to communicate to humans God's will. There's no way for you and me to know what's right, what's wrong, what should I do, what should I not do. It's not in us. It's not within man who walks to direct his steps, Jeremiah said. You, know, you and I don't know how to be good. God has to tell us. Notice as our civilization has lost that notion. Then good, you know, for example, love. What is love? Well, If two men love each other, two women love each other, they ought to be able to get married. By whose definition? By whose definition of love? Well, not God's. So you see, when a civilization is cut off, cut away from God, then definitions, words, moral sensibilities are up in the air. And it's a free-for-all. And it's whoever can bully the most, whether on a judicial bench or in a voting booth. But God still exists. And it's only by his law that we can even have the knowledge of right and wrong.
The law identifies and pinpoints God's will. So it must be continually declared, promoted, and enforced. You realize our civilization right now more than ever before desperately needs Christians to stand up and articulate clearly God's view of things. Even though we will bring upon ourselves more and more persecution and labeled hate speech. So if you ever read any statement in Romans or anywhere else that seems to be a negative assessment of law, you know you've misunderstood it because it's not. The law could not possibly be described or labeled in some sort of negative way because God authored it, and God's never authored anything that is in any way inadequate or inappropriate. Now, of course, the point that uh, Romans makes is that once you violate law, the law cannot do anything to fix that for you. Somebody says, well, then the law is defective. No, it's not. That's like kicking your car because it won't fly you to Pennsylvania. It wasn't designed to. That's not its purpose. The law intended to keep people safe, to, keep, to tell them what is life and what is right, in hopes that they would then comply with it. But when you choose not to, don't blame that on law or suggest that law should do something about it. All law can do is condemn the lawbreaker. So by definition, it can't forgive. Now, it can prescribe your penalty. It can stipulate your punishment, but it can't get you out of your predicament. So Romans teaches we need something else. Here's another place where the Reformation movement and the liberal element in the church goes awry. Okay, then, law is bad. We don't want that. We need something else. That's not what Romans or the Bible teaches. It says we're not going to get rid of law. Law is still good. We need something in addition to law. And that's what the law of Moses was designed to foreshadow. It couldn't fix the problem, but it could hint at it with animal blood so that people could get the notion in their mind, you know, when you violate God's law, then you you can still be forgiven. There is a way to be forgiven through atonement. The term used in Romans is propitiation, 3.25. So we need something beyond that. Well, law and grace, that is the gospel, that's really what grace is, don't differ with each other in terms of the necessity of obedience Grace provides a way to be forgiven when you disobey. So the bondage to law that Galatians speaks of, for example, that's not talking about bondage to keeping law. Oh, I'm in bondage because I've got to keep all these laws. (laughs) That's the 60s mentality of my generation. No, it's bondage to breaking the law. Once you break it, you're in bondage because you're going to be lost and go to hell. That's bondage indeed. But God, through his grace, has made a way out. Notice that the religious world around us thinks that Romans contrasts human work with, well, just believe, but don't do any work because then you'd be trying to save yourself. And it's a free gift, Ephesians 2.8, so you can't do anything. See that contrast? That has literally gone to seed in the religious world, but it's as incorrect as it can possibly be in assessing what the Bible teaches. Specifically in Romans, the contrast is actually Jews thinking they could be saved because of their fleshly connection to Abraham, their close association to the law, even though they didn't keep it. But it was their law, the law of Moses, 
Jewish law, Mosaic law, and their rejection, therefore, really of Christ and the ultimate antidote that God intended. So we don't, you know, we're not really in that Jewish mentality, but I would think that an application to what this book is saying is that any person who thinks they can be saved by their own efforts, maybe their fleshly affiliation, whatever they're thinking is the way they can achieve it, is incorrect if you've sinned. If you've sinned, then it's outside of your capability of atoning for that sin. So this book is stressing that you're saved by faith, not flesh. One other thing I would like to stress to you before we launch into chapter 12. You know, the religious world, for 500 years at least, has stressed, Luther certainly stressed it, that this is the great Pauline treatise on justification by faith. That's how it's built. I think that's, that's fair and, and a, an accurate assessment. But then the bulk of Christendom has misdefined faith, have they not? Faith is just, you know, in your mind, basically, just accepting Jesus, making the Lord of your life mentally. You're deciding to do that. It's a decision, a cognitive, mental, intellectual decision. And it's at that moment that you're saved. So at that moment, you are saved by faith. That's the clear teaching that prevails in Christendom. But isn't it incredible? Of course, the Holy Spirit looks down through time and knows all that's going to happen. Anticipated all of that in this very book. Chapter 1, 5 and 16, 26, he used the exact same phrase in the original both times. As if he's stating at the very beginning of the book and at the very end of the book, here's what we're talking about when we say you have to believe. You know, Romans 5, 1, being therefore justified by faith. What does that mean? Answer to, by the religious world, that just means accept Jesus as your. Well, he doesn't define it there. But he does in 1 5 and 16 26, like two flags, one at the beginning, one at the end, so people don't miss it. But they apparently have. The expression is talking about an obedient faith. So this is not an objective genitive obedience to the faith, but a subjective genitive obedience which faith manifests. Look at how these uh, prominent translations in our day render this. Uh, The King James rendered the expression two different ways, unfortunate when it's the same phrase, and really missed it the first time. Obedience to the faith. So you can't get anything out of that except the Christian faith. But that's not what the passage says. The New King James puts to the faith both times. Completely missing it in my opinion. The ASV, true to its uh, attempt to maintain The original grammar of the parent language left it vague, obedience of faith. So you can't really settle that, but at least you're not misdirected. The New American Standard, along with the ESV, uh, goes the same way, obedience of faith. The NIV, whatever issues we may have with that translation, they nailed this. They didn't render it the same in both places, but they rendered the same idea. Notice this, to the obedience that comes from faith. And so that all nations might believe and obey. We sing trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. They nailed it on that. And yet here's the great evangelical translation that prevails in in, uh, Christendom today. And yet that translation makes this very clear. 
So uh, the faith of Romans is a faith that acts. It is a faith that complies with God's teaching. Now, if you will look at at the book of Romans, 16 chapters, and uh, think about the layout of the book here. The first eight chapters are clearly expounding on that theme given in 1, 16, and 17. And then you have this strange parenthesis. Not strange, but, I mean, it's just inserted. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. Clearly designed to answer the question, okay, in view of what you're saying here, that it's Jew and Gentile, everybody can be saved, and it's not based on your flesh or your, your uh, connection to Abraham or anything. It's whoever believes. Then what are you saying about the Jews? What, what does that mean? Because they've always been God's chosen people, and he worked with them for centuries, and, and you're acting like you know they're pretty much all not going to make it. I believe those three chapters were written to expound and explain that. Notice then how this uh, book lays out. Having expounded the theme, the gospel is God's power to save. So what? We just supposed supposed to sit back and say, well, that's great. We can be saved. Okay. And that's it? No, this book, like most of the books of the New Testament, say, therefore, in view of this, the gospel is God's power to save. You can be saved. You can get in a right relationship with God. Be saved by his grace. In view of that, Paul inserts his standard Pauline discourse marker, parakalo, translated, I beg, I beseech, I urge, I plead with you. Live a life accordingly. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel. That's how he put it over in Philippians. So you see that? The gospel is God's power to save. It's in harmony with the nature of God. It solves all of our problems. Therefore, what difference is it going to make in your life? God did all this so that we would be faithful and live the Christian life and be with him forever. What a great book. So chapters 1 through 8, the theme is expounded. The gospel is God's power to save everybody, regardless of their ethnicity. He inserts the parenthetical statement to answer the question, what about the Jews? And then he comes to the real therefore punch of the book. Therefore, you need to live a righteous life. Chapters 12 through 16. That brings us then to this section of chapter 12, where the two phrases that have been assigned to me are located. Mine are rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Isn't that fascinating that after expounding all this information in these first, uh, especially the first eight chapters and explaining all the complicated issues with the Jews, then he gets down to brass tacks and says, therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then in like in rapid fire, you know, Gatling gun, he starts laying it out there. And I wish I could have heard uh, all the speakers up to this point. Lag, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord in honor, preferring one another. These are great expressions that are powerful in their import. Uh, by the way, you and I are to live our lives and function. Notice the rejoicing and hope <clears throat> suggests that even in bad times, no matter what you and I face, if we're striving to be faithful Christian, we're not perfect, we sin. You know, Romans takes that into account. 
But we're striving to be faithful. Why, why would you be here on a Wednesday night? There was no meal, was there, ahead of time. So that, you know, that's a big indication right there. People are here because they have spiritual appetites. Well, do you think that means that we're all exempt from suffering? No, I've, I've known many Christians that have suffered unbelievably so. In fact, uh, you know, Tommy is our general manager at AP, and uh, his uh, brother's, I think that's right, his brother's little girl got sick. They took her to a hospital in Birmingham. Then the other little girl got sick. And then they found out just to, and put her in the hospital. Then they found out just today that the mother is having uh, heart issues or something. So they've been, they put her in the hospital all up there in Birmingham. Have you ever had three family members of your immediate family have something health or traumatic happen all at the same time? Well, these kinds of things occasionally occur, but uh, and most of us are not undergoing constant, intense, prolonged suffering. But probably everybody in here has had some form of suffering that maybe kind of knocked you for a loop. maybe, Maybe caused you to stop and say, say what? What's going on here? And you kind of begin reassessing and reevaluating your life, don't you? By the way, uh, AP published a book on why people suffer, and I brought a few copies of that if you're interested. He says that Christians have hope, regardless of what you entail, what you go through, what you have to endure and suffer. Unlike everybody else here on the planet, see? Remember how Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians 4 at a funeral? You grieved, you shed tears for loved ones? Yeah. But we do not grieve like people who have no hope. It's like a different caliber. It's a different plane of human existence. Able to put into perspective these tribulations that come our way. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. You know that word patient has uh, three, uh, there are three synonyms, three terms, depending upon your translation. They really are all driving at the same thing. Patience certainly is the ability to endure, put up with, passive. But typically patience in the Bible is an active thing. It's being able to persevere, to press forward when you are under the gun, when you're under the weight. You don't sit down and wait for this to pass. You keep, if not physically, emotionally and mentally, you are able to keep a positive, aggressive attitude spiritually. And you know that uh, the Bible teaches that uh, if you want to increase your patience, it states it both in Romans 5 and over in James, um, if you ask for that, there's only one way that it can be developed. And that's by going through pain and suffering. So just a word to the wise, you know. If you don't want to heap pain and suffering on yourself, hold back on those prayers about, God, give me more patience. And when your little five-year-old is doing something and you say that, you're really asking for him to do more because God's going to discipline you in that, see. But I'll tell you, we we can develop it. And the more we experience that's negative in our lives, the stronger we are to face more. 
I don't think I could have handled many of the things that I've experienced later in life if I'd not gone through some of the things that I went through early in life. I'm sure that's the case with you as well. We develop a toughness, a thickness of skin, so to speak, spiritually and emotionally. So we are patient in tribulation. We put up with it. We bear up under it. We don't throw in the towel. Remember the statement made in 1 Corinthians 10 where he says, you know, there's really not anything that you're going to experience or suffer that is not common to man. Somebody else has gone through it before you have. But in fact, for Christians, God will make a way of escape. Now that sounds like he's saying, oh good, I I can get out from under this. I don't have to go through. No, he says, so that you may be able to bear it, right? He's not going to take us out of tribulation, exempt us from tribulation. He's just going to make it possible for us to go through it and not suffer more than we are able to bear. You know, if somebody, we, we uh, sympathize with anybody that's undergoing something excruciating, and we probably even sympathize when they walk away from the church. You know, we think, oh, man, I wish, wish you could have held on. But notice 1 Corinthians 10 is saying, I'm not going to give you more than you're able to handle. So if you reach a point in your life and say, that's it, I'm out of here, I can't handle this, I'm leaving Christ in the church. Well, you should have tied a, note, uh, a knot at the end of the rope and hung on a little longer because it's not. more than, When you stand for God at the end of time, you can't say, well, I really did have more than I could bear. It's not fair to expect me to stay faithful. There's no such scenario. So we must never give up. Let me call your attention to just one incident in the book of Acts that I think typifies these two phrases so well. We won't spend a lot of time. Our time is nearly up. In Acts 16, you remember when uh, Paul and his uh, cohort tried to, uh, I guess, help this girl by expelling this demon. But the text indicates that he was really just annoyed by the situation. And that, of course, caused the masters of the girl to lose their profit. You know, when you start touching people's pocketbooks, then they get upset. So Paul and Silas were dragged into the marketplace, seized and drugged there, and uh, accused of, you know, troubling the city. And look what the multitude did. Uh, rose up together against them, and then the, magi- the city magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, do you remember that... Under Roman civil law, uh, there was a, a lictor who followed the magistrate around, usually two of them, and they carried these rods with them because their purpose was to um, not only protect the, the magistrate, they were like bodyguards, but to implement any sort of punishment that he deemed necessary on lawbreakers. Notice the symbolism, the imagery of this. This symbolizes these fellows. And they uh, had this kind of a acts connected because it was also the means of capital punishment. So these men were beaten with these rods with many stripes, the text said, thrown into prison and placed in the inner prison with their feet in the stocks. You know, some of those stocks would not only hook your feet, but your arms and your head. Apparently they only had to deal with the feet part. But you remember what they did that night, midnight, praying, singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners are listening to that. They're listening to that. So that when the earthquake occurred 
And you remember the jailer thought, oh boy, they've gotten away and so he was going to commit suicide. You know, you would have thought Paul would have kept quiet. Yeah, this is the guy that had us beaten, ultimately, and has us in prison. No, he didn't want him to suffer any harm. We're here. And then that gave him an opportunity to teach the gospel, and the fellow was obeyed the gospel and became a Christian. So, you know, have you and I gone through anything like that? And the Bible's filled with this kind of thing, isn't it? May I suggest to you that as our civilization, as Christianity continues to evaporate in our society, you and I are going to commence to face more persecution that resembles what we've read about in God's Word. You know, uh, Frank Chester got a call at uh, Peace Street about a week or so ago by a woman asking if they could have a ceremony in the church building. And he pieced everything together and concluded this would have been a lesbian thing. So you see this element is poised. They've got the red or the green light from the the so-called Supreme Court when the Supreme Court is in heaven. And if you think that means now we can just sit back and shake our heads and there's not going to be immediate ramifications, we've got to prepare. Um, Melvin is, I don't know if you've spent any time working on this, but Melvin is uh, trying to prepare recommendations for church bylaws so that we can shield ourselves as much as we possibly can for this assault that is clearly coming. All right, let's close. When you and I face the everyday inconveniences of life, can we maintain a contented spirit, a happy attitude? Because we have a hope that the rest of the world does not have. Can we do that? Can we be patient, that is, endure gracefully, knowing the ultimate outcome of our tribulations? We may be drugged through the mud, but we know the ultimate outcome. Indeed, 2 Corinthians 5, we've we've got a building from God, a house not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. Going back to Romans chapter 8. Isn't this a great statement? I I reckon, King James says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. Now, you know, think about that for a while. Okay, we've got them. Some of them are pretty intense. But you know what? The sufferings of this present time are not really worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us and to us in eternity. You're very kind. Thank you for listening to me for this period.